that was a portion of the scripture we have before us. Really been spending these last two um, weeks, and, and we'll spend this week and next, in Ephesians 1 and 2. And in some ways, we're going to be talking about this last verse that on, your, this, on the screen, where his workmanship this week created for good works next week. And so what we're going to talk about is the grace of his workmanship in our lives. This week, we had an elders meeting, our normal elders-only meeting, and what we do is we go over the year, go through the list of everybody in the church and pray for them, and then we write little notes to you. And so if you've received a note, don't freak out. We just prayed for you. There's no, like, you're not in trouble. We just prayed for you. Uh, and... Um, and then we spent time working through some theological issues, some heart issues, mission issues, and we were coming at um, really important things like God's love, his judgment, his mercy, our united, being united with Christ, our justification, um, all these kind of things. And um, we were coming from lots of different angles. And at the end, we just listened to Ephesians 1 and 2. Just read it and listened to it. And the purpose was just to be in awe just to be in awe. And so what I want you to do is close your eyes and just listen to it. This is of a spoken word version. It's a group out of Chicago that uh, tries to translate into more of a hip-hop generation. And so that's what we're doing this week. Next week, we'll listen to uh, the British guy on the ESV thing. But uh, so this week will be Hip-Hop Chicago, all right? Just, just Ephesians 1.
That was about three minutes. There's six chapters. The total time it takes to have them read through Ephesians for you is about 24 minutes. One of your applications for this week is to either get Max McLeod or whatever that guy's name, the British guy on the ESV one, or this or something, or just read it out loud. Is it Max McLeod? Did I make that up? McLean. McLean Max McLean, sorry. The British guy. And he does a great job, too. Um, just take some time and listen. I hope that you will be in awe by it. You know that first part before it turns to the prayer that you listen to? That's one sentence in Greek. It literally is a, is, is a, is a tirade of God's grace. It is an absolute can't get over himself. You cannot read it without losing your breath. It takes your breath away. And so your first application was to read that. Your second application in this first part of the sermon is to resist the urge to make something as complex and beautiful and multifaceted as the grace of God simple. We'll talk about simplicity in a second. But in a day and age when sound bites and tweets and social media likes count as intellectual and emotional engagement, resist simplifying the grace of God in Christ. Remember, it takes one of the world's longest run-on sentences for Paul to get to a portion of it in the first chapter of Ephesians. So what we're going to talk about is the source and the scope of this word grace. We talk about being transformed by God's grace into faithful servants of all. This is the workmanship part, the masterpiece part. The source of God's grace is actually the Father's love and the Son's life and the Spirit's power. So we start with the Father's love. John Murray calls the Father the author of our salvation, the prime mover uh, of, of, of grace. It is a premeditated love. Beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which set, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, or simply in his love, he predestined us. We can talk about predestination. We're going to do it plenty when we get to Romans 9 through 11. Don't worry. But what I want you to hear is that you were planned for, you were prepared for, you were preemptively pursued, you were wanted. I think most of us know what it's feel like to be not wanted than to be wanted. Another date where all they do is talk about themselves. Another movement towards someone that is, that is rejected. Another longing that you might be pursued and yet it is left unmet. Another reminder that mom or dad left or mom or dad are absent or friends betray or family is just not as safe as you had hoped. 
But if you read anything in this passage or listen to this week's uh, uh, Ephesians passages or letter, you know that you were pursued, thought about, planned for. There was a premeditated love. So when your mirror lies to you and tells you that you are not wanted, the Scripture, the source of grace himself, the Father, and his premeditative love scream against what that mirror tells you. And it is a lie. It is a lie. Maybe the third application is, and this is going to sound weird, but weird's okay. Why don't you stand in the mirror this week and read this? Or better yet, let Max read it to you. Or better yet, let a friend to read it to you and switch it up. That won't be awkward at all. But maybe awkward is what we need to break down the lie of the mirror. Someone else to come in and invade what that reflection says. But not just the father's preemptive or premeditated love, but the son's life. God is the author. The father is the author of our salvation. The son is the accomplisher of our salvation, the accomplisher of grace in our world. In him, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Some six to eight times in this passage that we just listened to, there's some type of in him or through him. Jesus' life and death and resurrection in some mysterious way become our very lives when we come to him. He suffers under life on earth and under the wrath of God so that we do not need to. His self-sacrifice, his blood, and the resurrection accomplishes this redemption, this forgiving, this loving, this making right what is wrong in the world, in us and in the world. It is in him that the masterpiece of God's redemption, the glory of God's grace, is manifest. The just punishment we deserve is not given to us because it's taken on by the Son, whom we die in. And in him, our sins are forgiven. We participate in his resurrection, seated at the right hand of the Father in these passages 1 and 2. It is unbelievable. In him, what is offered to us, and in him, what is required of us, is that true, authentic, forgiven, empowered life is found in him and him alone. And it's not just offered to us. It needs to come with a little more of an edge. It's actually demanded of us that we find life there for us to bend our knee to the king who conquers sin and death in us and in the world. And he does so by the very source of his father's love. It is his love that drove him to us, and it is his love that drives us to him. To, wit, to admit our need for cleansing, we need a safe place to go with that need. His kindness leads to repentance. His beauty, which includes his majesty and his power and his purity and the fear we have in coming to, to, in, into the presence of such brilliance, it is that very thing that actually humbles us to admit that we are a broken and rebellious people. 
And he answers that position, that place with us going, I am going to love the rebellion and the brokenness right out of you. I'm going to overwhelm you and the enemy with my power, my sacrifice, and my grace. Not just the Father, not just the Son. You probably guess where the next one's going, the Spirit. I forgot to put these passages in your bulletin. There's so many things I had to keep out of it. It was such a pain. Um, We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Or in 2.18, for through him we we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Talking about Jews and Gentiles there. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, Jews and Gentiles brought into one church. Hear me. In Christ, you are not just made right with God. Oh, you are made right with God. But no, the Spirit comes and lives in you, and you in him. So you are sealed, and you become embedded into his life. The Spirit Spirit becomes this kind of down payment on the promise of your salvation. And the Spirit, not the author of salvation, not the accomplisher of salvation, but the application or the applier of salvation in our lives. By the way, that's all John Murray if you want to look all that stuff up. And your life is now in Christ because of the Spirit's work. You now participate in the power and the glory of the Trinity. Somehow we're united in the love bond and the sacrificial relationship and the the honor-giving hot potato that exists in the Trinity. And we participate in the life of the Trinity. That should blow your mind. I say all this to remind you that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not at odds with each other. It isn't angry dad and codependent son with peacemaker spirit trying to figure it all out make sure it's all okay. No, they are in cahoots for our redemption. They're in on this together, which also means they can all be mad, so we're all honest. They are perfectly in sync with the grace they intend to bring the grace they bring to people who don't deserve it but are sure glad it got it. Your life is hidden in God and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that is the source of the gospel. Not only the source, it's actually the end. That's where we live and move and have our being and will we end in glory as well. That's amazing. But I want you to also lean into not just the source but the scope of the gospel because we can all get limited and and myopic in the way we think about these things. Now I love what we talked about, what Jen talked about in terms of Corey's own life, that she is the superpower of of connection, of being drawn to people who are broken in the margins. That's exactly what the gospel talks about here, what grace is, the scope of grace is here. It's close, personal, intimate. In him we have redemption through his blood. I want you to think of something. I want you to think of the sin you regret, the one that is haunting to you at times. Whether it's recent or long-term, in him we have the redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of that according to the riches of his grace. 
And not just the forgiveness of sin that is deep and profound, but that we're separated from Christ. Now he's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. It means living outside where there is no God, having no hope without the God, God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, once you who are far off now become near or close, intimate, connected because of the blood of Jesus. My conversion... I've talked to you about it before, and I'll talk to you about it again. A lot of things were going great. I was a high school student, and things that were going great felt like the most important things in the world. Sports, grades, and girls. You would have thought I was on top of the world. But it was because I had everybody con but me and Jesus. I was a liar. I was an anxious mess. I was deeply wounded. And my, my soul felt like it was just pulling apart and pulling apart and pulling apart. A life of cheating and deception, a fraud, a successful fraud. I sat on my bed one day, one night, and I prayed, I don't know if you're real, but I know I'm not real. Please make me whole. Please forgive my stuff. Please... I don't want to be in charge of my life anymore. I said, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know who I am, but I don't want this way anymore. Will you take over? Didn't know that wasn't exactly how to come to Jesus, but he took it because he's kind. And by the way, that's exactly how he come to Jesus. Friends, if you're struggling with believing in this God, whether you're a Christian or not, my personal testimony to you actually matches Paul here. There is no hope without God in the world. There is hope with God in the world. Both Christian and not, you can and are invited to spend the rest of eternity trying to grasp what Joey prayed for me, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This personal, intimate grace. That mirror begins to slowly lose its power of condemnation and begins to reflect the very love and identity that we've always longed for, to belong, to be accepted as daughters, to be accepted as sons of the king and not just the king, of the living God, the God and king of the universe accepts you in Christ Jesus truly objects of his affection. But don't, don't limit the scope of the grace to just the personal and the closeness. This passage is full of, of, of other things like the communal reality. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, the Jew and the Gentile. So he's making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, and I love this line, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. I need you to hear this. In Christ, by his cross, God has made one new humanity. That is just as much as the transforming grace as the personal they are together. In fact, communal doesn't mean not personal. 
It just means it's not private. This is the language of the beloved community, the church. This is at the core of his redemptive plan to bring about a new polis, a new people, a new humanity. Please let your imagination run on this. I read a statistic by a fellow pastor that said, uh, I think it's a, it was on, in Christianity Today, nearly two-thirds of churchgoers, 65%, agreed with the statement, I can walk with God without other believers. My friends, that is a lie from hell. This is not just like a comprom- this is not just compromise with our culture of individualism. This is this is this is avoiding the very transforming power of grace that is involved in our lives, the very core of what we're called to. Gathered worship is the central act of his people, not just us as a person. Jesus did not just come for me. He came for us and all the us's that are out there that will be called by his name. Christianity is a team sport, friends. Don't forget it. But that's not just a rebuke. It's an invitation to, to imagine what it would like, be like that if it were true. That we need one another because, in fact, we need one another. Jesus killed this hostility that exists between us. Let us not participate in that type of resurrection But don't limit that either. And this is the part where some of us really struggle, depending on what strain of the church you grew up in and what tradition is part of yours, what you're part of. When you read through this week and you read through chapter 2 and, and verses 1, you get a taste of the same stuff we heard in Romans about how sin and death reigned in the world and that Jesus, through his resurrection, has actually conquered sin and death in its, its tight grip over the world in some miraculous cosmic way. And in fact, the purpose is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. How many times when you think about grace do you think about that? Grace, he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And by the way, 2 goes on to talk about how we're sit with him in those heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. How many times do we think about um, uh, every knee shall bow, bow one day in the age to come. The hit says, oh, that's the afterthought. He's actually now reigning in this age. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's us. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That is mystery that should just shake your imagination and give yourself to. And when you think about grace, I know we think about the personal, but must think about the cosmic as well. Can we let ourselves be challenged here? That the reign of Jesus, the sacrificial love of Jesus, the manifest kindness of Jesus in the cross and his resurrection, that, in, that, 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 that actually is the thing that holds the power in the universe. What if we saw this grace, the scope and source of this grace, this Father's premeditated love, as the most powerful, most desired, most wanted to be lived in, out of, lived in, or lived out of thing in the universe? What if we believed the mission of Jesus was to bring this reign of grace that would unite all things in, in him, in heaven and on earth? How would that make us reimagine our lives together? How would, it, how would you read your newspaper differently if that kind of grace was the basis of our lives? 
How would we treat our neighbors? How would we treat our enemies? I can tell you one thing we'd be better at, including myself. We'd be more ready to die for them than live for ourselves. Lord, have mercy. Would you transform us all by that grace? Now, if you look as a church as a whole, sometimes, y'all, we're like yelling at each other because we're concentrating on one aspect of this part of grace or the other aspect of this kind of grace. And y'all, 2020 is coming. And we will destroy each other. The, the Hell itself wants us toxically uh, participating in the kind of rants and evil conversations that we would have. I'm not saying we shouldn't disagree about stuff. We should absolutely disagree about stuff because we're trying to like, figure out what the, the reign of the Lord looks like in our day and age. But we must refuse to fight like that. We must refuse with everything in us. We must refuse the, the, the people on uh, the, the right who say, uh, if your pastor's talking about social justice, you should ignore him because he's a progressive and he doesn't believe the Bible. That's ridiculous. And you must refuse the preachers on the left who are saying that your personal holiness and your family life and your righteousness don't matter. All that matters is you care for the marginalized. That's ridiculous. The grace of God is larger than that. Let it blow your mind. We actually have the resources to come together on this to love each other on this. Come, let us return to the Lord and to the scriptures and let us see with humility the grace that he's bringing forth. Do not limit the scope of his grace. The personal, the communal, the cosmic reality, it is a public witness to the world. What does it mean for our relationship to other churches, our loyalty to other institutions, our hopes for what we see God doing in the world, our longings for what the good life looks like and how we'll bring our resources to bear to it, our attitudes about people we share the supper with every Sunday, and our attitudes about people that we, for some reason, never share a meal with, our judgmental attitudes towards others, and then our judgmental attitudes who are judgmental towards others. That's supposed to be a little funny our wimpy compromise with the world because we're scared of people. Our hopes for what God can do in Winston-Salem, our consideration of all the social ills of our day, I don't care what side of the aisle they fall on. And not just in the age to come, but now the scripture says. So what? Last application, I want you to resist making the complex reality of grace impossible. Because though the complexity of grace is more than we can ask or imagine, the reality is there's a word that it corresponds with, and that is gift. And so that gift is complex, but when it comes to your response to it, it is not. Because what do you do with a gift? You receive it. That's the simple part of grace. Let the other part blow your mind. But let the simple part be open-handed, receiving. This is what he has done. And we hadn't done anything to bring it about, so we got no braggers in the room. It is all by his grace 
his unmerited gift. It's a gift he's given us. He's actually given us the faith to receive it too. We'll talk about that one later. But it is too big for us to grasp, too intimate to us to push away, and too powerful for us to ignore. So just receive it. In it, he offers freedom from sin and guilt and shame. He offers adoption into his family. He offers citizenship into his kingdom of love. He offers acceptance and peace even in the midst of pain. He offers a new humanity whose ethics are love and justice and forgiveness and freed from the tyranny of the self. He offers a mission that covers every square inch of the world and in fact the cosmos. He offers his grace, his unmerited mercy, whose scope is wider than we can dream and whose source is none other than the power of God in Christ through the Spirit himself. Believer and non-believer alike, come to his grace. Let it blow your mind and seize your very life. You will lose your life and you will gain his. Y'all, I've shown you this before. And kids, when art breaks in certain cultures, especially in a Japanese culture, when a bowl like this breaks, what happens is they stitch it back together, they bring it back together, and the lining they bring it back together, the glue that they use is gold. You can see where the pot broke, and you can see how the masterpiece has worked out from brokenness to something even more beautiful. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works. Let's pray.